0: Welcome to The Salience Podcast, where we identify what stands out from all the noise.
1: In the first season of The Salience Podcast, I explored various aspects of resilience, from managing risk to hosting effective online meetings, and even learning about how to manage chronic pain from folks that enjoy spanky time. For the next season, I want to explore culture. Culture can be viewed at any scale, from a team or family an organisation, nationally or even by region. So I don't want to be constrained by scale. However, I want a salient focus. And I'm especially interested in how culture influences relationships for good and bad. On the upsides, what aspects of culture enable high performance, great teamwork and the ability to survive and thrive through adversity? On the downside, how does culture enable and support toxic relationships? How does it limit choice and contribute to stress, trauma and even ill health or the demise of people, organizations and nations? To explore these topics, we've been heading into conversations with people who have successfully navigated some challenging cross-cultural boundaries. And at the extremes, we will be talking with people that have escaped religious cults or domestic violence or toxic companies or managers. In those dark examples I want to know how they managed exit risk. We will also talk with people who have written or studied culture and have practical insights to offer to navigate cultural challenges or guidance on how to manage exit risk from situations where getting out can be lethal. One of the most important aspects of creating a quality culture involves diversity. So I've invited my colleague, Jengo, from our Singapore office to co-host the next season of the Salience podcast. Jen will host some interviews, I'll host some others, and here and there, we will co-host together to mix things up a bit. In today's podcast, we're going to have a two-way conversation about our own experiences of culture and how that has shaped us and what guides where our attention is in the world. Welcome, Jen, to the Salience Podcast.
0: Hi, Great to be here.
1: So we've been collaborating for around about eight years now. And at the time, you were working with Dave Snowden at Cognitive Edge, and I was starting to make the links from coaching and team dynamics into complexity theory. And the Kenevan framework and the work you were doing with Dave really resonated for me. What happened before joining Cognitive Edge that led you to focus on complexity-based leadership?
0: Oh, um, It's it's a great question, and I think to answer that, I need to go into a little bit of... You know the professional background that I bring. Uh, so I am an anthropologist by training. Uh, my a lot of my early work was actually applied ethnography. and um, it was an interesting sort of space because back then, some fifteen to eighteen years ago, ethnography had not really been acknowledged as a legitimate business use case. Uh, and at that point, I was with the university. And I was transitioning out of research from the university into more corporate-based work. And one of the first uh, big contracts I got was actually with um, a tiny department in our Ministry of Health in Singapore, which is the Department of STD Control. So um, my first contract was to utilize ethnography to study sex workers. Because a lot of their traditional approaches they realized weren't working. And they wanted to apply an ethnographic approach to understand how do we really connect with sex workers so we can teach them some very practical skills. For example, how do you negotiate the use of condoms? Um, how do you actually, uh, you know, put on a, a condom with your mouth? So these are really highly practical skills. Uh, and, and you can imagine, right? These are, situations where the power dynamics are not in the favor of the sex worker. So it was an interesting experience for me because going into this space as a woman, I I had to shed a lot of my own um, preconceptions and really understand how to connect with these women and to explore some of the ways uh, that they're making sense of their own lives and their own work. Um, So some things came to the fore. For example, um, some sex workers from specific nationalities refer to a blowjob as a lollipop, right? And, and it's precisely these kinds of language cues that we have to utilize that shift away from, you know, the script that the Ministry of Health had put together. So it's bringing in all of these types of cultural nuances that was really critical to creating the right educational videos. Um, and then beyond that as well, now just to bring it to a broader space. I At that point, I had been working in research at the university. I had left. I was starting to explore more corporate work. Um, I was also exploring, uh, and trying to understand how real estate is being done and sitting at, at the boundary across all of these different worlds. I realized that the ways that leaders frame things across these different worlds create a lot of, you know, these cross-cultural dynamics and, and problems that some organizations run into. So. That was where my my interest was piqued. And I said, this is something that we need to explore so that we can help to create more bridges as opposed to having this space where it's just not connecting at all.
1: Mm. I like that idea of cross-cultural dynamics and and bridges. What were some of your own early cultural influences that position you for particularly for this idea of this bridging this this making connections across cultures
0: so um it's it's always interesting when people hear you're from singapore uh, so i i always like to think um, of singapore as uh asia for beginners and and it's interesting because a, a lot of organizations that i work with they tend to start their asia offices and headquarters in Singapore. And then they think that, oh, because I can understand Singapore, I can work in Singapore, that sets me up for the rest of Asia. And you know, beyond that, um, you know, they they believe that Singapore is um like a prototype and that other parts of Asia are variations of Singapore. And it's it's always interesting because they get this shock that, you know, it's not like that. Even within Southeast Asia, every country has a different language, has a different system, has a different cultural background. Um, so, having been born and brought up in Singapore, I think it offers an interesting perspective. It is a bridging space, but beyond that, it's also neither here nor there, right? Um, you get a glimpse into the other side, but you also have this awareness, I don't fully understand it. So, it creates, you know, what I like to refer to as a bit of a bastardized perspective. Uh, the blend of everything. It's, you know, not particularly pure in any space. Um, beyond that as well, you know, I, I've lived and worked in, in o- almost every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> I think that that helps to create a broader perspective, but there is this awareness of myself as being both outsider and insider and sort of, um, you know, threshold dweller at the same time. So for me, those those types of awareness really influence my own understanding of culture. What about you, Ian?
1: Well, I, I've got very little experience of Eastern cultures very broadly, Singapore, uh, Asia. I, I have a lot of experience of Antarctica, <laughs> the, the one place <laughs> that you don't. Um, I think... A lot of a lot of my early cultural experiences were, were as a young kid growing up in Britain in the seventies and eighties. Uh, I was a punk, uh, in both the literal and the metaphoric sense. Uh, very challenging in in England in the seventies and eighties. I certainly learnt resilience and uh, how to like, how to get along with people. And from there, I had a uh, dozens and dozens of of, of jobs in. In hospitality in uh, in delivery in supermarkets, and all sorts of things, uh, really avoiding getting into academia, I think uh, for quite a while and until I realized that I was actually quite curious about learning uh, and as soon as that that curiosity was ignited i I sort of switched my focus, and ended up heading down a track of. Polar research uh, for many years, and into leading and, and managing people and teams in in remote uh, and challenging environments. And I think some of my later cultural experiences were around working in government and uh, and seeing the effect of of culture on on behaviours, on the way that uh, particularly young people, young women, most of my uh, most of my staff were, were were students had a lot of phd students mainly female students from from engineering and different universities and and seeing them in an environment like antarctica that was very male dominated uh, and and seeing the challenges that they had uh, with being abused or harassed uh in a in a disproportionately male environment that that was certainly eye-opening and it and it set me up for thinking about how i can manage culture and how i can help help teams and help team dynamics and help set up protective teams if anything when there's a when there's a hostile environment that you're working in how do you set up almost a subculture that's very very strong and very protective uh, so so that's a little bit about my my culture and i think um some of those cultural cultural challenges i'm still working on now for 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 different organizations uh and and at the same time being mindful of my own biases where am i where am i blind where am i where do I have sensitive spots where am I, where do I have certain things that you know, push my buttons if you like uh, what about you what 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 cultural biases push your buttons if there's if there's anything out there
0: it's right. so so interesting that you share um your background working with young female academics in a male dominated environment. Because one of the things that, um, I don't want to use the word trigger lightly because I know that these are things we have options around. I can choose not to be triggered by it. So I'm going to refer to it as a bit of a cultural annoyance. Um, hmm. as you know, when you start working with a new company and you recognize and notice that they have this dominance of middle-aged white males in senior leadership positions, and, you know, it might be that they have some women or some minorities, but, you know, when you study the actual structure, you know that those positions might have less formal authority, for example. And that kind of gets to me. Um, but, you know, I, I realize and I recognize that I should not let that trigger me because these are often systems in transition and that, you know, as much as yourself and the work that you've done, it's important to understand and see where you can pick out cultural champions and allies and foster really, you know, helpful and powerful alliances because allies are so important. And what you've mentioned, it's it's this concept of creating a subculture. I think that that's really interesting because oftentimes, um, you know, when people think about culture and culture change, they think we need to, change and correct culture, we need to fix culture, but culture is not a thing that you can fix, you know, at best, you can start to create other cultural attractors, other ways of being, and, and allowing that to start to build its own, um, you know, dynamic following, and, and I think that, that that for me, you know, um, is something that I'm consciously working on, uh, so it's it's nice to have allies like yourself in in the workplace. Um, and, and I mean, what about you? And what kind of cultural biases are you working on?
1: I've got a couple of projects at the moment that we've been asked to work with culture broadly, and and often we're giving a given us a, a set or even a deck of cards with with people's cultural values on. These are the these are the cultural values that we've got in our organisation. Can you help us really impose these values or or encourage these values in the business? And they're always the usual ones, you know, the good they're they're the good values: respect, trust, integrity, you know, the usual the usual things. I don't know how many organisations have got those as their corporate values, and and I'm always reluctant to go there. Uh, I'd much rather start by an open an open ended question of you know for this team this organization to be just the way you'd like it to be it will be like what and i want to see what what values and what what sort of cultural descriptors come out right the way f- through the business what is it that they need and and particularly in frontline agencies often often trust comes very high up and i think i saw something recently and it was a it was a meme or a, a short post by Simon Sinek. And he was talking about the relationship between trust and performance and how he'd done some work with the Navy SEALs. And the Navy SEALs will choose people. Of course, they want people who they can trust and they want people who can do high performance. And on a graph, they're in the top right-hand corner. They've got high performance, high trust. And he said, but given a choice, if you can't have that, uh, they'll go for... They'll take a compromise on performance, providing they've got high-trust individuals. And And I recognize that I've probably had a bias in, in my career of the opposite. I've tended to go for people who can get the job done. Uh, they're high performers, and they're often really, really hard to work with for one reason or another. They treat you with contempt. You can't trust them. They don't deliver, whatever it is. And and I think this is the thing that I'm, I'm really in, interested in myself, my own biases, uh, you know if I'm really blunt about it, I, I like working with people that can get the job done so that I don't have to micromanage them. I don't have to do this stuff myself. but ultimately you've got to pay a price for that. you've got to, you've got to start to rein in and work out well, hang on, these things aren't working. and so I'm really interested in the in the Simon Sinek diagram, and I'm interested in really breaking down trust from a binary trust, not trust, into what are all the elements of trust and can that be trained can that be changed can we create attractors that develop trust in individuals as well as the more obvious one of hey let's get high trust individuals and develop their performance whatever you know their competency whatever that might be so i'm exploring that boundary at that man, moment between or that relationship between performance and trust in, in organizations and and i'm really acutely aware of my own biases in here uh, so that's where i'm i'm curious at the moment
0: Oh, trust is a good one. In mean, um there's so many organizations that are, you know, really thinking around this concept of trust now, particularly as we transition into a world of hybrid working and, and all of that. Um I actually read a really great book recently. Um it's called How to Build Great Teams. Very simple title, I like it. Uh and and in that book, um the author explores trust. Uh, through you know a, a few dynamics, and he says that uh, so the the story the story that he used to carry his thinking is actually around an um, expedition and and how this guy who trekked through the Amazon had a partner that um he had you know a good personal relationship with, I think they started off with high trust, potentially not so high in performance. um and how that relationship fell apart very quickly. Then he took on a guide that he didn't have much trust um, with, but they were able to build that. And, and he, he broke he broke it down and he said that a lot of the problems begin because we need, regardless of um, a person's performance and regardless of your interpersonal trust that already exists in that relationship, to actually develop and come to an agreement on what he refers to as first-page trust. So, you know, really explicit sort of what are we doing? What are escalation, um, approaches? How do we actually speak to each other? How do we table issues? You know, it's, it's so interesting. He said you start off that way because you don't have anything else to go by. Um, mm-hmm. but you also need to transcend beyond this concept of first page trust. And, and that's where some of the things that you've mentioned, it's, it's, um, performance, uh, interpersonal dynamics, interpersonal trust, uh, shared stories and references, those things need to then be cultivated. But oftentimes people either skip the first page trust and try to go into the next phase, or they start from the next phase, or they start from the first page trust and they never transcend to the next phase. And then that's where the trust sort of falls apart. So I thought that was a really interesting take on the topic.
1: Yeah. I think we could easily have a whole podcast just on trust and unpacking different people's perspectives and criteria for trust you know it's interesting that you can trust somebody with your life you can trust them to to be there for you and not trust them to be on time not trust them to deliver what they say they're going to do uh, or vice versa somebody can be very. Uh, outcome oriented they'll do what they say they're going to do they'll deliver on time but you don't actually trust their motives Uh, they they might speak with contempt or they might be machiavellian or they might be uh, passive aggressive uh, behind the scenes and there's so much there to unpack in this idea of you know what exactly do you trust in somebody? What patterns of behavior do you trust reasonably? And what patterns do you trust that you know that they're not going to deliver on? You can at least trust the pattern, even if it's not to your advantage. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I think that's something that we need to explore in the, in the coming episodes. Uh, I think this is going to be a key, a really key part of, of unpacking culture uh, and, and what it means for some of the more... Um, Challenging manifestations of culture, whether it's either really good culture leading to to high performance, or the or the, more of the cultural explorations that can impact resilience. If we don't get it right, uh, some of the things I'm interested in, and you know, jump in here. You, we're we're going to follow our nose with, with where we're curious. But I, I'm interested in always starting at the top. You know, what 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 are the politics and the the culture of boards and executives, and and what does that mean for a business when the cultures at, culture at the top is rotten? Uh, I'm I'm interested in, of course, the East-West and and then the East-East differences, and you know we've you 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 talked about that important difference of the Singapore being Asia for dummies, you know it's Asia 101. Uh, you can you can get a flavour for it here, but it's so different elsewhere. Um. And I'd like to get into the, the cultural perspectives on gender-based violence and family violence and, and cults and how, I mean, there's a, Australia's a good example. Australia's got a fantastic culture in so many ways. It is multinational, it's multidiverse, it's got so many different flavours within it. And then we have some just horrendous things to do with domestic and family violence, a prevalence that's off the chart. Uh, you know, I want to unpack some of that and come up with some of the cultural insights that can help us shift that. Relationships, crappy jobs. Uh, is there anything else from your perspective you think you'd like to follow your nose with on on the relationship of culture to to relationships?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's such a rich topic. And um, so some of the areas that I'm interested in are you know, it's very convenient, I think, and people have utilized this framing for so long of East versus West. But if you really think about it, what does that mean? Because if you think about, um, let's take Australia for an example, right? The East and the West side of Australia, completely different cultures. but And then Australia as a country, in the broader East versus West debate, where does it really sit? You know, it's, it, sometimes it says, we're more Asian and by geography, you're closer. But, you know, a- aspects of the culture are um, veer more toward the West. So I find that this East-West dichotomy is convenient, but potentially also problematic. Um, and we see that a lot now in, in things being fra- framed as U.S. versus China. That is not a helpful dichotomy. Um, And, and what I've seen is there are also East-East dynamics. Um, and what I'd love to explore is, uh, you know, expanding Chinese companies as they move into, um, the rest of Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, where, you know, you also get that North and South difference, right? How are they adjusting to the cultural differences? Um, are they just bringing this dominant Chinese culture with them as they set up new offices? Um, you know, we've, we've heard, you know, like, oh, U.S. companies expanding. They just bring their own culture. They're not sensitive, but countries within, you know, the East, I'm using this term very loosely, right? They're also doing it to each other. Um, beyond that, there is also North South, um, North North, South South, you know, there's so many ways to think about it. Um, but I think what I'm interested in is, is sort of to extrapolate to a higher level is, um, the the broader sense-making around culture. How are people framing things? Uh, because we utilize certain um, s- more simple ways of thinking, because that helps us to make sense, create meaning around experiences that we're having, particularly as cultures, um, you know, they come together. I, w- I don't want to say collide, but they're increasingly brushing up against each other. We need these Sense-making frames to help us to, you know, make meaning around events. Um, but what underlies those sense-making frames? How can we unpack it a bit? Because I think a lot of the cultural conflicts that we experience are because of the stubbornness of these sense-making frames. And to support, um, you know, useful cross-cultural exchange transition, we actually need to do a bit of sense unmaking, you know, to correct to correct that a bit so that we broaden how we frame so at a higher level those are the things that i'm really interested in exploring
1: Mm. yeah as you were talking there about this idea of a of a higher frame and uh, an undoing almost some sense making uh, it reminded me of a trip i I don't know what the trigger was here that made me think of this i i did a trip with a ski buddy gary uh, many years ago to the to the borderlands in in turkey with iran and iraq Uh, and we were we were backcountry ski touring There's a small group of us five people and you know we've got bright orange jackets and we've got skis and we're going into the remotest villages right on the it's essentially in a war zone Uh, we were with the kurdish people Uh, they were viewed as terrorists by by the turkish people and a Turkish government anyway and we were absolutely in in Kurdish lands on this this boundary region. We're walking through paddocks, through fields, uh, uh, visiting these little villages utterly remote and what struck me was we looked absolutely out of place. We're a bunch of white guys in bright coloured jackets with skis and every single village would invite us in for tea and it was as simple as this. It was... I think a simple measure is, and I reflected on living in Tasmania, what would happen if we had a bunch of Kurdish people walking through paddocks in the middle of nowhere? Would they be welcomed in for a cup of tea or not? Uh, and, I, you know, I, I reflected on some areas of where, where near where I live, and they wouldn't be. They wouldn't be welcome. I mean, some places they would. But what really struck me was how welcoming the, the, the Kurds were, uh, and the Turkish people as well. You know, there was no distinction really from us. That They were just the most hospitable people I've met it's so out of context and maybe it's as simple as that that are you curious enough to invite these people over for a cup of tea uh it was the most cultural shock shocking moment that I think I've had uh, just because it was so welcoming um and and that idea of you know tracking for something simple r- brings me to to thinking a little bit about where we place our attention in in facilitating those cross cultural connections those bridges that you mentioned right at the the early part where where do you go when you're facilitating or you're working to build those connections where's your attention what are you looking for what opportunities is it is it the the ability to connect two people over a cup of tea what is it that you're doing uh, to facilitate those bridges
0: Oh, I mean, this is a good one. So, um, I, I, uh, I train in the space of complex facilitation at the Civil Service College in Singapore. And a lot of that work is around supporting public officers in our government to do better partnership and engagement, um, with citizens, with other stakeholders. And, you know, they, they always have the same types of issues, which is, um, some people um clearly come in with a desire to influence the agenda um some people are really quiet they're not participating even though we know that we need to hear from them you know so these are consistent challenges you know whether it's uh in, in an organization or at the level of of trying to um you know engage an entire citizenry and um some of the things that I always tell people is, you know, be very careful with the power dynamics you introduce into the room. Uh, oftentimes, people are so eager to say, oh, let's get everybody, you know, in the room so they can hear from each other and, and, you know, mix people really early, get the opinions all voiced out at the same table. You know, it's this very idealistic approach to thinking about um facilitation and engagement. And a lot of it is good intentioned, right? Um, However, you know the challenge with that is you are influencing and reinforcing power dynamics in a very small microcosm of the system, and that's why you know the the facilitation and engagement isn't as rich. So, um, some of the things that I you know try to recommend to them is actually do it in smaller groups. Um, don't think about an engagement as an event. An engagement is an ongoing series of activities. A lot of times when um whether it's organizations or countries or um international development agencies, they think of engagement as, you know, the event. We'll get in, we'll ask them all these questions, or we'll run this survey, we'll get all this data. It's a very extractive frame of mind, right? But there isn't enough thought being put into how does this support the Ongoing dialogue that should actually become a normal part of ongoing engagement. So it really is around reshaping the relationships and coming to an ongoing feedback loop. And, you know, it's not purely extractive. There is return. There is um, invitations to say, we have all this information. We want your perspective on how you're seeing it. And when you start off with um, smaller groups, you can collect that information and then socialize at a later time. And that's when you are triggering less of the power dynamics. And to go back to that question of trust, right? Within um, teams, there needs to be trust. But beyond that, when you're doing facilitation, what you're really trying to get at is building understanding and trust across factions, across groups. And that is not a one-time extractive thing. So, it, again, it's a sort of going to the broader frame of facilitating. It's thinking about it as ongoing engagement. Um, and I'm sure you, you have some fascinating experiences as well, Ian, um, in the work that you do.
1: Yeah, interesting. I think I've been doing something quite a lot recently that uses spatial dynamics and understanding the role of space to really surface power dynamics that you were talking about. So, looking at the setup of a room uh, or even a, even a board table or talking about communicating with influence, and when somebody's describing a situation that they're in, uh, I'll, get a, I'll get the board and I'll draw up the table. I say, I bet you're sat around a board table that looks like this. And they'll go, typically go, yeah. I'll say, I bet that you sit here. And they'll go, yeah. And I go, and I bet that person that you're talking about sits here. And that somebody, and this person that you're talking about sits there, and we can map out the relationships based upon the spatial dynamics and the narrative from the relationships that somebody's been describing. And I think that gives us the opportunity to start training and understanding the subtle cues and the nonverbal spatial dynamics in rooms. That tell us not just about how we use space to 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 shore up the power dynamics, but also to surface what the power dynamics actually are. Uh, and I think once we start to do that, people people learn that hey, I'm I'm exercising from a position of power here that I had no idea I was doing. And other people go, wow, I didn't realize that I was being subjected to these power dynamics. So so that's some really curious work. Um, so yeah, I, I, I absolutely resonate with this idea of, of of power dynamics and 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 the I liked something you said very early on here, which was about systems in transition. Instead of being triggered about them, you're going, "Hey, here's a system. There's a transition happening here. There's a global transition happening, uh, with people recognising, particularly white middle-aged men in in power positions, the the, the dynamics from." You know, greatly disproportionate number of, of males in executive boards. Uh, they're just some of the examples. So, uh, I, I think there's, I think there is a bit of a global movement, uh, and I think there's certainly an, an, an intention to improve that. And, and I'm curious, what what aspects of culture. I mean, that's one example. What aspects of culture are you not walking past? Where is it that you go, hang on a minute, stop right there. This is something that I want to surface. This is something that I want to tackle or have a voice about. Uh, what is it that you're not walking past?
0: It's interesting that, that um, you know, you mentioned um, all of these things, right? There's these spatial dynamics around how power is exercised and I, I I love that. That's such an ingenious way of um, helping people to visualize how they're reinforcing the system. Um, One of the things that I've found um, really reinforces systems is this uh, obsession with data. And now I, I love data. I'm a data junkie. But I've also recognized that data is only as important as the types of questions you ask and what you're paying attention to, and what you're collecting information around. So um, I was just facilitating a senior leadership team last week, and um, I've been working with them on an innovation um, project. And a lot of our work started off with, let's try to find you know, the most innovative ideas, let's, let's scope the ecosystem, let's see what people are thinking, so we can pull all of this inspiration into our innovation portfolio. and. The, you know, the, the work that we did in scanning the system provided us with really great ideas, really great insight. Um, but you know what really surprised me most was when we presented it to the senior leadership team, there was exhaustion, not excitement. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got the CEO and the COO being really excited by these ideas. And then the rest of the team sort of being like, okay, this is great, but, you know, and um, in a follow-up session, they said, what should we do? You know, what are, some, what are some of the things that you noticed in the data? And the question that I asked the team was, how are you guys feeling about the state of innovation in your organization today? And I got a lot of, um, you know, answers like, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, a lot of overwhelmed. And then I asked, um, you know, how excited are you? What is your level of excitement? And where is this excitement coming from? And everyone was stumped. They were like, we've never been asked that before. And they said, we're excited, but there is always the but. And um, I, I turned to the CEO and COO and said, I don't think you guys have a problem with innovation in terms of how you're pushing the envelope. I think you have a problem with how you're bringing these ideas to fruition and how you're balancing innovation in your portfolio against business as usual because what i'm sensing in your your team is exhaustion and the ceo said oh where did that show up in our data and i said we have to be very careful with what we call data data is not just what comes on a formal spreadsheet right um data is how people are responding um participation levels um, how excited people are to actually, you know, um, get on board when the idea is exciting. Uh, you know, they had so many things going on, uh, but they weren't balancing it against business as usual. And and it it was a very interesting point for them. They're like, ah, so data goes beyond what we formally collect in spreadsheets. So that's something I would like to surface more in organizations.
1: Yeah, I I, I think. I mean, there's always a danger in this of course, but I think some of the data that you you're talking about can still be it can still be measured and, and and graphed and visualized. You know, we can we can look at excitement, we can look at overwhelm and we can capture those narratives. I, I think one of the biggest ones I'm I'm working with at the moment is, is sense of threat in the workplace. Uh, people are fearful. They're Mainly fearful of the managers, sometimes of the co-workers, and occasionally it's the the client, the patient, the enemy, the you know the the inmate or whatever it might be. In, in particularly in frontline work, the sense of threat really drives or and is an integral part of culture. Uh, we have all sorts of behaviours then, and these are some of the things that are, I'm I'm really working on myself in my own with my colleagues, uh, with the people I work with. And that's around passive-aggressive behaviours, uh, not really surfacing or not, not being willing to provide feedback, not being willing to, to stand up and say, hey, look, this is not okay. And related to that is is this sense of contempt, uh, and that can be expressed verbally and non-verbally. And I think there's are some of the cultural elements I'm really keen to work on at, at organisational levels. Uh, and and start to track and I, i'm you know i'm getting some really good data there on some of those intangible elements that you were talking about that influence things like innovation and performance and uh, you know business performance as a whole and and risk uh, and i think that they can still be tracked i think we just have to be a little bit careful that we don't end up uh, creating systems where people start gaming those those metrics
0: yeah absolutely um i think one of the things that that sort of um, always interests me is it's gotten very um, common and popular to highlight the importance of context when we're dealing with problems, when we're approaching issues. Um, but it's funny, I, I once did this exercise where I asked my clients, what is context? What is your context? And the reality is people don't know how to define it. It's just too big a question because um, context really ref- refers to that broader framing and therein, you know, it lies all of the issues around what are the things that I should be highlighting and paying attention to. Um, and one of the concepts that I, I learned recently that I think is so interesting is this concept of a, a constitutive constraint. So, all systems have constraints, right? Time, money, resources, so on and so forth. Um, and some of these are constitutive and some of these are culturally imposed. And, um, so an example that, that, the, um, that, that was given was in a, you know, if you take away the rules in a game of chess, the game of chess no longer exists, right? It's just a bunch of um, little figurines. But if you remove traffic rule, Traffic still exists. And and in every system, you have a combination of both the constitutive constraints and the things that have become so culturally accepted that we assume they're constitutive. Right. And and a really good exercise I have found with um, my clients is really just to ask them, hey, let's think about your context. It's so convenient. Again, it's like this East-West dichotomy, this framing, right? And context this becomes another way to frame things which is ironic because it is talking about the broader framing. So what is the context of your context? How do we really think around this? How do we identify the constraints? And then how do we identify the ones that are truly constitutive and the ones that we can actually play with a bit more malleable? right? Um. So and I think that also links back to some of this, um, how do we collect data? What do we collect data on? You know, what are some of the questions we need to be probing into the system around?
1: I think one of the biggest cultural challenges that I'd like to, to nudge is very much the same. It's this idea of evidence-based thinking. It's, it's, yes, it's data. It's what are you looking for? What kind of things support your thinking? What kind of things will refute your thinking? And that's much, much more valuable. How would I scan the world? with a filter that's going to tell me that I'm actually going down a dead end here or I'm going somewhere that's going to be dangerous or I'm going somewhere that I've got a strong belief in, what's the evidence going to tell me that I'm wrong, not the confirmation bias that tells me that I'm right? Uh, so I, I agree with you. I've got a slightly different frame on it, but I, I think that's one of my top pet things that I'm placing attention on, I suppose. Yeah.
0: So Ian, if if you could direct people's attention, you know whether it's it's your clients in coaching or the organizations that you're working with, or, or just you know people you interact with, right? If you could direct their attention to something important in the world to you, what would that be?
1: I think I think it it comes down to that that evidence and placing the evidence in the whole context of the whole of life. So it's really stepping back from that that focus that often we have in business or in an organization or in day to day stepping right back and saying okay what evidence is telling me that this is working for me that I'm happy that you know I'm I'm in an, an environment that's kind whether it's relationships or the team you're working with so I think it's stepping back using evidence and then making decisions on the basis of that I'm living my best life here is this a good use of my time right now? If I'm in a crappy job right now, is it serving me right now? And if it's not, then what am I going to do about it? What evidence is telling me that I'm I'm living my best life? Uh, so I, I think that would that would be it. What about you? What what um? Where would you direct people's attention? What what would that be?
0: I, I love that you mentioned kindness, as kindness is such an important and underrated thing um, for the world. Actually, in the past, when people asked me what, what I looked for in a partner, I said, I need them to be kind. And, and everyone thought I was just joking around, but it's such an important quality. So I definitely resonate with that. Um, I, I mean, what, what I saw and heard through um, our conversation and in what you've just... Um, and how you've just responded is actually, um, and that—that's what it is for me—is this concept of awareness. Um, I, you know, how aware are you of, um, you know, how you're spending your time, how that is contributing to the broader world around you. How aware are you of, you know, the the kind of conditions that you're actually working under, and whether you're able to change them or to improve them. Um, how aware of you of the intangibilities that are in the system that, you know, you actually do have a little bit of agency over, right? So I think the thing that I would sort of point people's attention to is awareness and agency, because people are very quick to surrender their agency. The system has me in this position. You know, I am receiving these problems. I'm receiving these conditions. But awareness creates agency. And I think that 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 allows people to become more active participants in their own life and allows us to, you know, challenge some of the bigger problems that we see in the world, like around, um, you know, very strong cultural biases that some people have against each other, Um, the way we're utilising resources, we're in a climate crunch, right? People believe that the system is just as it is. And again, that surrendering agency is identifying where our agency really does sit.
1: Yeah, I like that. I think you've articulated some of my passions better than I did there. That's great. Uh, I like this uh, this combination of awareness and agency. And and we began exploring some of your early days and your your early projects and how they helped inform where your uh, interests were. And given this, this notion of agency and awareness of where you are in your life right now, what are your future aspirations, uh, work or elsewhere in life?
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, I wanna be seeping margaritas on a beach somewhere. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um I, I, I think that um my aspirations are really to start to focus and, and choose work that really makes a difference. And and the you know, to contribute attention to areas where I know that the type of work that we're doing together can influence things. Um, for example, in the space of potentially energies, right? How do we actually increase awareness of how there are alternatives, um, improve the ways that we're transitioning toward these alternatives, um, you know, in the space potentially of pharmaceuticals, right? How can we actually improve the way as as a population we have a relationship with ourselves, our bodies, our health. Um what are the ways that we can transition beyond this um what I think it has been created is a dependency type of system. Right? There are ways where we can more creatively um co create a new system. And I, I would really love to explore what that looks like because I think that if we don't, we're in for a lot of trouble. So, at a at a professional level, those are the places that like to put my my time, my my interests, um, my energy. Uh, at a personal level, is it's really, um, and this is something I've always struggled with, which is understanding how to balance. Genuinely, we talk about work life balance. We talk about you know um, prioritizing your own health and well being. Understanding the value of personal time—that's something I have always struggled with, and I would really love to um, nudge more closely towards that concept of balance. <laughs> what about yourself, Ian?
1: I, uh, fairly similar. I, I like this idea that you mentioned of a uh, of co-creating a new system, and I was in a I had a conversation with Dave Snowden on eight Maybe eight or nine years ago now, and we we were talking about Tasmania, and he said you've got a great opportunity in Tasmania because it's like a small country. He said you've got some boundaries, you've got some cultural norms, and he said you've got opportunities to to shape and change culture, leadership, and and awareness at the scale of a small country, and and I I was really taken by that, and I, I love this idea that that we could have an impact at the level of a state. Like a small country, and I think one of the things that we're doing in the, in the business is we've we've now got a critical mass working across so many different agencies, teaching complexity awareness, uh, resilience, uh, how to lead effectively, how to create this th- you know this thing called psychological safety. How do you do it? How do you track it? Uh, and now that we're starting to see agencies talking to each other and working together collaboratively, working in a systems informed way they're acknowledging complexity and ambiguity uh, they're acknowledging that things are falling down the gaps between different roles and different structures and different uh, hierarchies and that hierarchies don't necessarily work and we need a much more fluid way of uh, of achieving uh, looking after people whatever it might be so i think there's i think there's that uh, i think there's opportunities globally to 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 particularly i guess work with trauma i think that's probably a passion uh, of mine within the business is is really finding a way to scale the the work that we do around trauma reduction and recovery uh particularly for frontline people that that do have very very tough jobs and i think i think yeah i i like to be i like to be largely unbalanced in in my work and life i, I teeter between lots and lots of really good holiday and lots and lots of work but i i take your point that you know i'd really like to make sure that that's in uh it, it, just how I'd like it to be, you know, with, with my wife and my kids and, and having some really fantastic adventures there and, and having it all uh, at a pretty high pace. I, I think that's, that's perhaps mine, my, my aspirations there. Keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I think it's, by and large, it's working pretty well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think for the next year ahead, the next two years, I think it's really going to be a focus on that adventure and learning uh, and seeing where we go. Uh, I, I think i think i've taken i've taken a number of points from today's conversation and it's really started to, for me to think about the the next interviews that are coming up over the next few days actually i I'm taking some salient points from from you around systems in transition and how we can help those rather than just butt up against them. How can we help that transition how can we help uh, the change in power dynamics, that was a key part. How can we use data and evidence in a more nuanced way that supports that transition from some of the established power dynamics that, that aren't working now? They don't have the diversity that we need uh, for for today's problems. Uh, so how can we take all of that to, to co-create this new system that you're talking about, this new system that's complexity-informed, culturally diverse, uh, and tackle some of the really big problems of today, they 're the salient points I took from what you said. Uh, what did you take from what I said?
0: So um, what I heard from you in is uh, the importance, and i 'm going to go with sort of uh, three words that came to mind. Um, uh, the first one is, is really around um, framing. Right. Uh, you talked about this frame um, that puts performance trust and trust in tension, but recognizing that they actually aren't, and, and framing that, it that way is the problem. Uh, that's linked also to some of the things that we discussed around, you know, East West. But we need to broaden, uh, you know, the broader cultural problems that we're seeing, and, and so that people can see them less as problems and see them more as, you know, these are the ways that I need to work with the system. Uh, so framing is one. Um, the other one that, that I think really came up, um, as is the subtext in a lot of the things that we were discussing is this concept of awareness, uh, awareness of power dynamics with that spatial exercise that you, um, you do with your clients, um, awareness of the conditions that you're actually working under and awareness of how you can influence them. And then, um, the third one resonates a lot with, with your point is this one around co-creation that I think a lot of the work that you do and we do um, together is helping people recognize that you are co-creating your reality and you have the ability to co-create a different one. So those mm. were the salient points for me.
1: Ah, Fantastic. Thanks for the conversation. I'm really looking forward to interviewing people, hearing the interviews that you do with people and uh, hopping on and doing some co- uh, co-creation co of, of interviews and podcasts together together. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely. It's been a great time. Thank you. I'm looking forward to all of the fun adventures we'll have.
1: (laughs) Thanks a lot. I'll see you soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Salience Podcast. Please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to the Frontline Mind newsletter by visiting our website at frontlinemind.com. Have you got a topic you would like some more salience on? Send us a message on LinkedIn or email team at frontlinemind.com.